Well, Genesis 4 famously starts with the account of the first murder in human history. We've reached the second generation of the human race and already things have gone horribly wrong. But if you're a fan of true crime drama, I've got to tell you that you might be just a little bit disappointed by this account. Helen and I love a good um, crime drama, uh, combing through trying to work out the whodunits before the great reveal at the end of the show. I made a real mess of this at the back here. That should be better. Uh, but here in Genesis 4, we're told the whodunit up front with no details about the murder. There's no description of the murder weapon, if there was one, or where Cain had hit the body, if he did, or, where, uh, or how his parents reacted when they found out that one of their sons had killed his brother. That's because Genesis 4 really at the heart is not actually about the first murder at all. This chapter is doing something much bigger, much more far-reaching and quite a bit more confrontational than that. Genesis 4 is written for us to show us two different ways of worship, then to expose two different ways of facing reality before highlighting two very different ways to live. Two different ways of worship, two different ways of facing reality, and two different ways to live. Let me pray for us as we come to a passage that many of us would know, but that we'd have fresh eyes as we come to this passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to come now to your word. And we just pray, Father, that you would um, reveal in us um, those things we need to see in ourselves as we seek to respond to you. We pray that we may know you better and understand ourselves better. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, two ways to worship. In chapter 4, verse 1, we're introduced abruptly to two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain, whose name means the getter, is the older of the two. His younger brother is called Abel, which means the breath. Reading from Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And that's it. That's all the biographical details we get. Apart from the note at the end of verse 2, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Back in chapter 1, their dad Adam was told to subdue the earth and fill it. And on the earth, uh, on the face of it, Cain and Abel are having a good crack at this, aren't they? Cain is doing exactly what his father Adam would have wished. He is working the ground from which he came. And Abel, well, he is trying to fill the earth with the productive animals. And so all seems good so far. Their father, Adam, was told to work and keep the earth. Now that phrase, work and keep, comes up time and time and again in the scriptures to describe the job of the priests, the people who were to work and keep the temple running. So this pair share the responsibility of making the whole earth a place where you could meet with God, a giant temple, if you like, where people like you and I have the chance to know and enjoy God. God has said back in chapter 3 that this is now going to be very difficult after their parents decided that they'd rather do things their way than God's way. But this is their job and they're getting on with it, including, it seems, doing what priests do, and that is making sacrifices to God. But, and it's a significant but, when it came to sacrifice time for these prototype priests, 
only one of them comes up with the sacrificial goods. Abel's sacrifice gets a thumbs up from God, but not Cain's. Reading from verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. This did not go down well with Cain, as you can see um, from the end of verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So what's the problem here? Well, if you look closely at the text, you'll see what's wrong. Cain, we're told, bought some of the fruits of the soil. I wonder if that some is just an implication for any old stuff, any of the old, anything that, you know, he happened to have produced. But Abel, he bought the best of the best, the best bits of the best animals. And God was delighted with Abel, but not so with Cain. So what's the difference? Well, actually, it's not so much in the substance of the sacrifice. As we all come to see, as the Bible um, unfolds, um, there are two kinds of sacrifice, animal sacrifices and, um, and crop sacrifices. Both of those are acceptable to God. So it's not in the, it's the substance, but in the attitude. The issue here is wholeheartedness versus tokenism. The issue is love versus empty ritual. What is on show here is what real worship is meant to be. Worship in the Bible is uh, the Bible's word for how we should relate to God, how we should, know, how we should show him what we think of him. And we do that by worshipping him. The way in which we worship God or serve God, if you want another word, shows our attitude to God. I suspect that Cain's attitude was written all over his face before he made the sacrifice. Now, for generations, teenagers and pre-teenagers have been masters of the you-can-make-me-do-it-but-you-can't-make-me-like-it mindset. So the room may be tidied, but whilst muttering, this is so unfair. The whole family may eventually go on the outing, but one member's dragging their feet ten steps behind. The food may get eaten, but only after the full repertoire of gagging noises have been wheeled out. It's not hard to spot when somebody's heart's not in it. I suspect that's what was obvious when Cain brought his sacrifice. For Cain, this was about going through the motions, but not for Abel. For Abel, worship was about God and his thankfulness to God. There really are only two kinds of worship. There's the 100% kind, which is real worship, 100% worship, wholehearted worship. Worship which consists of putting God first in every decision, in every priority, in every longing, every agenda for our whole lives. And then there's tokenism, doing a few things to keep God happy here and there. The problem is, according to the Bible, the second tokenism doesn't count as worship. Now, if you're a regular here like me, that may sound a little confronting, and it should. For the unnerving thing about Genesis 4 is that it raises the possibility that we could be doing the right things, but doing them for all the wrong reasons. I don't know about you, but I like to think that I get credit for the religious stuff that I do. I think that I should get credit for being here today, 
Sure, it could be argued that I'm paid to be here, but still, I'm not required to, um, to attend every service across the weekend, and yet I do. I mean, this week I am, because I'm preaching at every service, but next week, I don't have to go to every service I do, then surely, surely I get credit for that, don't I? Don't I get credit for the sacrifices that I've made to spend time with people? Don't I get, sacri- um, get credit for um, the prayers that I pray, the people that I visit? Isn't that something I'll get credit for? Well, no. That's Cain's approach. I should get credit for the things I do. But that's not how it works when it comes to worship. We don't get a running score from God on how well we're doing. God isn't satisfied with just the external acts of worship. We come here to church and we sing. That singing doesn't give you an extra credit point just because you sing. You may not even be engaged in what you're singing. Those words that you're singing may not have any impact. They're not coming from the heart. They're just coming out of the head and out of the mouth. You come together and you spend time with people, but it's not so much you want to build them up in faith. No, no, you just want friendship. You want them to notice you. You want them to, um, to love you. Well, that's not worship. You're generous with your funds. You're generous even with your time. But you're doing it not because this is all God's, that everything I have is God's, but because I want to be noticed for what I'm doing. I want people to see that I give up my time. I want, to see, I want people to see how generous I am um, when we come to the Thanksgiving weekends. I want people to see what I'm doing. All these are things that we do in the name of God, but they may not come from our hearts. Cain and his offering, God did not look favour upon, because for Cain, it was all about him. What's the difference with doing something for God and doing it for ourselves? Well, the difference is between real worship and self-worship. The difference between, um, that's the difference between Cain's sacrifice and Abel's. Abel trusted God. Cain trusted himself. Well, what about us? What has God asked for from us? Well, 100% worship. That's what he created us for. Everything, all the time, all day, every day, we have to be like Abel rather than like Cain. But I guess we need to actually know this about Abel, though. Even though Abel presented the right sacrifice at this moment, if he had lived a bit longer, I'm guessing that that wouldn't have lasted. Sooner or later, and probably sooner, he would have given a half-hearted or distracted or self-preoccupied sacrifice. He would have offered second-rate worship, too. If God demands 100% wholehearted worship all the time, we've got a problem, don't we? From this point on in the Bible, God is very clear on what he expects from people like you and I. He expects everything. So how can we pull that off? Well, the bad news is that we can't. But the great news is that God has done it for us. Jesus, by worshipping God perfectly as a human being and then offering a perfect, one-of-a-kind, infinitely powerful sacrifice in his death, has pulled it off for us. Listen to how Paul explains it in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, 
in view of God's mercy, that is in light of all that God has done for you in Jesus, to now offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Jesus, friends, is the ultimate worshipper. And because of him, our voices can now be heard by God. He is the perfect sacrifice. And because of him, our imperfect lives to God can now be accepted. You see, in the end, there are only two kinds of worship for the Christian. Either we worship through Jesus on the basis of what he has done for us. Or like Cain, we go it alone and come up short. Two different ways to worship. Two different ways to cope with reality. I think it's important to realise that not all is lost by the end of Genesis 4, verse 5. Yes, Cain has brought a rubbish sacrifice, and that wasn't smart. Yes, Cain is angry, angry with God. That's not a great thing either. But things aren't hopeless yet. Up to this point, I think we're meant to have sympathy with Cain. Yes, he should have known better than to bring a second-rate sacrifice. And yes, he shouldn't have been so sore with God and later his little brother. But haven't we all felt that at some time? I mean, to fail is human, isn't it? We all mess up. And there's one thing worse than messing up, and that's to mess up when the person next to you gets it right. This is what life is like in this flawed post-Genesis 3 world. This is our reality. But all isn't lost yet. Yes, Cain is a couple of bad decisions down a very dodgy road, but one good choice, and he can turn it all around. That's what God says in verse 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God knows that Cain has failed. Cain knows that he has failed. Both God and Cain know why Cain has failed. Now it's crunch time. How will Cain cope with the reality of his own failure? In verse 7, God actually spells out for him what he needs to do. He needs to do the right thing, which in context, I think, means uh, holding up his hands and saying, I'm sorry. I've blown it. And that's one option, one way of coping with reality. And I have to say, it's an attractive one, given that what God says here is that you will be accepted. If you recognise this, you will be forgiven. I will take you back. But what's the other option? Well, we said in the rest of verse 7. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The other option, of course, is to keep going down the track you're on, to keep sinning, to keep making it all about you. The choice is pretty clear. We can cope with failure by saying sorry, or we can plunge deeper into evil. I don't know if you'd noticed, but the language in verse 7 sounds quite familiar to what we heard last week. The phrases uh, desiring to have and ruling over are taken straight out of Genesis 3.16. There God was explaining to woman how her decision to rebel against him would affect her marriage. But now God is talking about a different kind of marriage. God is warning Cain that if he doesn't say sorry, if he presses on without God, 
then he will become so committed to rejecting God, so entangled in rejecting God, that it will be like the worst conceivable marriage. God says you can deal with failure by facing it and admitting that before me, or you can deal with failure by ignoring it. But be warned, there's a high price to pay. But sadly Cain chooses himself over God. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? As Cain has refused to face reality and say sorry, the only option left now is to lie and to protest his innocence. He gets defensive. But all he manages to do is highlight his own guilt. Defensiveness never works, does it? The phrase, am I my brother's keeper, is a famous one. But what we need to do is see how this is used in the context um, of Genesis. The word Cain uses is actually the same word that God used back in chapter 2, verse 15, when he said that he had put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. Adam was told to be a keeper. Cain and Abel were to be keepers. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Cain, you are. You are the keeper of the whole earth. But in tones that are strikingly similar to um, his dad, Adam, he tries to deny all responsibility. Of course, it's no use and God speaks again. Verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. We may not have thought it possible, but life for Cain has just got even harder. The curse of Genesis 3 is now ramped up, and now rest is even beyond his reach. As if things weren't bad enough, Cain, we're told, starts to feel sorry for himself. He may have just killed his brother and lied to God, but that doesn't stop him talking like a victim. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But even there, God's kindness isn't exhausted and God gives him a protective tattoo. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, literally the land of wandering, east of Eden. Now this chapter does tell us about the first murder, but I hope you can see that it has so much more to teach us. This is about how we cope with reality, this side of Genesis 3, in this messed up world, especially when we fail, and the choices that we face. We can either hold up our hands and say, I've blown it, or we can do what Cain does, give in to our anger, vent our anger on the nearest person, deny all that we've done, and wallow in self-pity. The result for Cain, sadly, is not relief, but restlessness. Cain chooses curse over blessing. He chooses independence over mercy. He chooses himself over God. Well, how about you? 
How do you cope with life in this real world? How do you cope when you fail? Before we leave these two ways of coping with reality, let me point out something very, very obvious. Whether we're seeking to follow Jesus or not, whether we are Christians or not, whether we're nice people or not, sometimes each and every one of us will act exactly like Cain. Cain messed up by offering God less than 100%. You ever done that? Jesus himself said that God asks of us to love God 100% and to love others 100%. Even if we could pull off the God bit, which none of us can, I don't reckon any of us would claim that we've always treated others um, 100% all the time in our way we've loved them. So we all know what it feels like to come up short. We know what it feels like to be exposed, to be judged, to feel guilty, looked down upon, just like Cain. So how do you cope? Well, sadly, sometimes we cope just like Cain did. Sometimes we feel like kicking ourselves. Sometimes we look around for someone else to kick or someone else to blame. Sometimes we just get angry when we fail, angry at God, angry at ourselves, angry at other people. Sometimes we're just like Cain. Now, friends, the truth is, is that we all mess up. We will all fail. We will all sin, just like Cain did. But it's what we do next that really matters. It's how we cope with this reality that shapes our lives and our relationships. We can either hold out our hands and say, sorry, God, or we can indulge in our anger. We can give ourselves license to feel sorry for ourselves. We can give ourselves permission to take out our anger on other people. We can allow ourselves to play the victim. We can say ridiculous things and attempt to portray ourselves as innocent. Ever done that? Perhaps as you think back on the last week, you can think of times you've done that just this week. It's Cain's behaviour and it's wrong. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain couldn't cope with failure. He couldn't bring himself to say sorry. That's so foolish, so wrong and so dangerous. God warned Cain that refusing to say sorry would have a massive impact on him. It would harden him. It will make him feel far more at home with evil. It will make it far harder for him ever to run back to God. The crouching tiger of sin will be there in his heart. And that's exactly what happens. Failure is an ever-present reality in our world, but failing isn't the issue. It's what we do next that counts. We need to learn to cope with that reality by running to God. The God who longs to help us. The God who offers to heal us, even when we fail. But there's one more thing to note in our passage. As this chapter continues, it starts to become clearer that there are just two ways to live. Cain's family continues to live without God. They get organised. They get creative. But sadly, they get angrier and angrier. Verse 17 Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain uh, was then building a city and he named the city after his son Enoch. 
To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahushal, and Mahushal was the father of Methushal, and Methushal was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adar and the other Zillah. Adar gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played string instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Neymar. Life in this family has now settled and it's creative. They're city slickers now. They're proud of their children. They play um, musical instruments. They're poets. They're innovative stockmen. They're brilliant metal workers. But you know what's not mentioned in that whole section? God. There is no God. They don't know God. They don't worship God. And sadly, they just get angry. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wife, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain's avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. The consequence of Adam and Eve's stupid rebellion against God, now compounded by Cain's rebellion against God, are here for all to see. Yes, there's beauty and ingenuity and civilization. But there's also harshness, hatred, murder and anger. This is what life is like without reference to God. This is what life is like where failure goes unfaced, unchecked and unaddressed. Where there is creativity and innovation. But behind it all there's sin and there's failure. Friends, this is our world as they live without God. You see, at one level, this is so positive about humanity and civilization. So much is achieved. But at another level, this is what we know. This is so realistic. This is life as the image of God without God himself. And in the end, it's a bit depressing. And it'd be even more depressing if Genesis 4 stopped there. But thankfully, it doesn't. Look with me at how the chapter closes in verse 25. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and his name was Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So God gives Adam and Eve another son to replace Abel, which is very kind. But you see how much airplay Seth gets. Not a lot. Seth's son Enosh doesn't get much exposure either, come to think of it. And yet around the time of Enosh's birth, people in this family start to call on the name of God. They start to cry out to God for help. They start to pray. It's a little odd, isn't it? That the birth of some guy called Enosh, about who we virtually know nothing about, kicks off a desire to reconnect with God. Here's what's going on, I think. Back last week in Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve um, were told that they would have a descendant who would crush the serpent and restore their relationship with God. So, who is this most likely serpent crusher? Who is this most likely saviour? Well, as we open chapter 4, you'd think it's Abel. He's the one that um, is coming before God. He's the one offering the perfect sacrifice, or at least um, one that is pleasing to God. But he gets killed. So he wasn't the saviour. 
The next contender, well, here, it's Seth. But we know nothing about Seth. He's passed over in a verse. He has a son whose name's Enos. So when Enos comes along, well, it doesn't seem like he actually contributes very much, other than we're told that at the time that Enos is born, people start to call on the name of the Lord. They know they keep messing up. So what do they do? Well, do they organise themselves? Do they invent? Do they create? Do they build? Well, perhaps. Do they try and solve their own problems? No, that's the way of Cain's family. Instead, in this family, they pray. They cry out to God to rescue them, to send the promised rescuer of chapter 3. Here's the choice we all face. Either we live without God or we cry out for mercy to God. Either way, we live um, without God or we live in dependence on God. For some of us, we will never have called upon the name of the Lord. For some of us here today, we've been doing our own thing, coping with life the best we can, living without reference to God. Friends, if that's you, I hope you can see that, well, that's just like Cain. Not that I expect that you've killed any of your siblings, although I'm sure at times you may have thought to, but you recognise your struggles, your frustrations, your strategies are just like that of his. If this is you, can I plead with you? Don't be like Cain. Cry out to God, knowing that he's poised to listen and will act to save you. But for many of us here today, we may have cried out to God years ago. You don't need me to convince you that you need God. That's a given. That's partly why you're here. But could it be that in the details of this past week and the one before and the one before that, you've actually been living more like Cain than like Abel? Getting angry, being defensive, feeling sorry for yourself, trying to cope with this life on your own. Living for yourself rather than for God. Friends, if this is you, as it can sometimes be me, let's not be like Cain. Let's continue to cry out to God knowing that he's poised to listen and that he will act to save you and me. Let's pray, friends, that as we go into this week, we will be more like Abel, but mostly more like Jesus, the true worshipper. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this chapter, uh, which paints a picture of the world we live in, the reality we live in. And we see ourselves in Cain all too often, Father, not really giving 100% of ourselves, our hearts distant from you, rather than uh, seeking to give you the glory that you alone deserve. But Father, we pray we don't make the mistake of Cain, that we don't allow those mistakes to lead us into further evil, but we turn back to you. And we thank you that we can do that because you sent the true worshipper, Jesus, who offered the perfect sacrifice so that we could come back to you. Father, we pray that we would live for Jesus, that we cling to him, and that you will continue to help us to walk uh, in his steps as we continue to help, um, as we continue to, uh, to get through this life. Father, we pray that, um, that we would, um, in the things we do, in the way we sing now, that we'd sing from our hearts, 
in thankfulness for what you have done for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.